Before I dive into the message here today, we do have a kind of special announcement. We've been teasing you here for a few months, and uh, we've decided we've selected a date. And so on October 22, 23, that weekend, we will be going to three services here at Life Community Church. And so that, that is exciting. Um, and I know a lot of people from Sundays at the beginning of the year sort of shifted over and made Saturday their primary service. That allowed us to get further. Um, but as we hit August, we, as we anticipated, um, not so much today. I think we got a bunch of people doing Color Sunday and, and hanging out in the beautiful weather. Um, but if you've been here over the past few weeks, you know this place has been absolutely packed out. And uh, our heart is just to continue to make room for people that God would draw so that we can continue to disciple people, see kids and youth and grown-ups grow and move closer to Jesus. And so in order to do that, we got to let go of some of our preferences. I'm not super excited about preaching twice on Sunday. I was kind of in a nice groove with once. But I know God's calling us to take this step as a church in order to continue to make room. And so we're hoping uh, just start thinking, praying about, we, because of the number of small families, families with small kids in the church, we anticipate nine will be quite a bit more busy. That means we need uh, quite a few of you to pray about making 11 your primary service on a Sunday. So we're excited about this. Um, we're excited about making room for those that God would continue to draw. And so mark your calendars, not next week. <laughs> we have three more weekends at 10 o'clock. And then on October 23rd, Sunday, we'll be going to 9 and 11. So, all right. Well, if you are here for the first time or joining us for the first time in a while, we are in a series in the book of John. And to get us there, um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I, I uh, grew up playing piano, loved music, and Going into ninth grade, me and a couple buddies decided we'd start a band so that we could lead worship. We had this big summer missions program in our youth group, and we wanted to lead worship for our band, or for our summer missions trip in our youth group. And so, uh, you know, my friend said, I'll learn bass, and the other friend said, I'll learn drums, and I'm like, okay, I'll learn guitar, and I was a singer. So... We, we did, and that summer, we started leading worship for our youth group, ninth grade, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, now, a lot of you, uh, I did that for years and years uh, as a worship pastor, but there was a season in my life, in my 20s, where I decided I wanted to kind of head in a different direction, so I began to pursue success in mainstream music. Um, I moved to Southern California so, good place, right? I moved to Southern California. I, I found uh, this really cool recording studio and a producer and found this guy. He was, it sounds fancy. Uh, it's, it sounds fancier than it is, but a platinum credited engineer, which is pretty cool. Um, really talented guys. And then I spent a whole lot of money recording a demo <laughs> that I still love to this day, but guess what? God had a different agenda for my life. My agenda was to pursue this like success and music and travel and tour all over. And I did that for a little bit, never really had much success, but traveled. And then God brought me to the place where ultimately I, it was his design for me. And I came, started leading worship for a young adult service, volunteering a couple years later, became a full-time worship pastor. So 
fairly young, wasn't quite as cool as Winston. He's pretty cool. Um, but but my wife, when, when she married me or when we met, I, I had this like cool three-quarter ton Dodge diesel pickup, you know, lifted. And uh, I was this like young, thin worship leader. And... Uh, <laughs> And then little did she know, like, even that wasn't God's long-term plan for us. She decided she was going to come back from the mission field for just a little while, then go back onto the mission field, and God had different plans for her. And so she never anticipated this, but um, years later, I sold the truck, got a little gas-efficient car when we had kids, and then became, like, you know, a teaching pastor. And so that made her a teaching pastor's wife, which wasn't in her plan either. But looking back, I'm so glad that we followed the things that God has called us to do as we've seen people baptized, as we see all these kids learning and growing in Jesus. Now, worship still holds a huge place in my heart. I love worship. I love what we do up here. We've got, you know, Winston and the band and our high school worship leader up here. And even this weekend, my kid was up here, which is really cool. And I love, I love seeing that. And when we talk about worship in churches like ours, oftentimes um, we think about music. We think about singing. In fact, I just, on purpose, use the two synonymously, leading worship, right? Uh, that's just what we call it, right? And we think about singing. We think about lifting up our, our voices. And maybe some of you, you're really bold, and you're like lifting up your hands. And, and uh, some of you are like, I know the real lyric to that song. And when we got to it, you were like, sloppy wet kiss. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> but so we think about worship. And Jesus said something interesting in John. Uh, we've been in the book of John for a while. If you remember the woman at the well, he said, um, there's coming a day when, and now is, when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth. And these are the kinds of worshipers that the Father is looking for that God has a heart and a desire for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, when we think about worship, so many times we just think in terms of music, and I love that portion of worship. When we come and we sing and we lift our hearts and we lift our hands and we just give our, you know, it's, it's an expression of praise and worship to God. I love that, but that's only a fraction of what worship is. In fact, if you remember, we don't use this term so much anymore, but you remember the whole church service was called a what? A worship service. Some of you, you know that growing up. As we listen to teaching, as we lift our hearts up, as we fellowship together. But, but that's not even the full expression of worship. Not even close. In fact, Paul, writing in Romans, he gives us a little bit of an insight into what worship is. And I got to say, like, if you want to understand worship, you got to understand that someone um, that grew up in a Jewish context in the first century would think of worship a little differently than we do. They would think of worship in the terms of a sacrifice. They would think of worship in terms of taking a lamb and going to the temple and offering it as a sacrifice of praise or a sacrifice of worship. It was something that cost something. It was something that was precious. It was something that was offered back to God. Paul talks about this and how that changed for followers of Jesus in the new covenant that we celebrate that we're all been invited into, that we celebrated in communion a little while ago. Here's what he says. In Romans 12, 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because you've seen his incredible mercy, like we said, just saying his incredible love for you, 
that was undeserved. He loved you first in view of that, keeping that in mind, keeping that in sight. To offer what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what? This is your true and proper worship. In other words, this is, again, a costly, precious sacrifice, but the sacrifice isn't a dove or it's not a lamb or it's not some grain. Paul says, here's how I want you, out of an overflow of love that comes from what he did for us first, here's how we are to live our lives. This is true worship. This is worshiping God as you offer your life. You bring back your life and say, God, here's my life. I want to live my life before you each and every day. I want my life to be poured out for you each and every day. This is my worship. And see, as followers of Jesus, I think it's easy to get things confused. It's easy to find a church that matches our preference when it comes to, uh, you know, the music or the teaching sometimes. It's easy to find that. And then um, maybe when things no longer match our preferences, just kind of move on. There's a big thing in consumer Christianity. We're we're in it to consume, right? It's easy for us to say we're followers of Jesus and then actually not really follow him in the day-to-day of our life, to do our own thing, to be all about our own agenda. It's easy if you grew grew up in church like I did to know all the right language to use, and you can sure sound like everything's Good, but actually your life isn't being lived in a day-in, day-out way as an act of worship to him like Paul just talks about. You don't, your heart actually isn't focused on him. And so in the text we're going to read here this morning, we're going to see an incredible, incredible example of extravagant worship. And what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to just read it fairly quickly and comment just a bit. And then we're going to come back and I'm going to highlight several different things from this text. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be jumping in in John chapter one, verse 12. And here's how this starts. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now pause there for a second. Because Lazarus, if you remember, uh, and you're with us, we took about a six-week break as we preached through the book of 2 Timothy. Um, but we looked at Lazarus uh, the, uh, the end of the summer there, going into August. And Lazarus, Jesus had just raised him from the dead. And it wasn't like right away. It wasn't like he, he went in the room and, and passed out and Jesus came in and did some CPR and like came out and he's like, he's, he's alive. No, the dude was in the tomb for four days. Lazarus was dead. In fact, if you remember his sister, as Jesus said, hey, roll the stone away. What did she say? I love the King James. But Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> that was like, don't do it. It's not going to end well. And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And man, um, lots of people from everywhere begin to believe in Jesus because of this sign. They knew no one but the Messiah could do this. No one had ever done this in history. It's, it was a powerful, powerful event. And so, um, so a while later, Jesus now returns to this town Bethany, where Lazarus lives. And it says, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. She is a sister of Martha and Lazarus now. So you have Mary, and she enters the scene, and she pours it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary comes now, and she, she offers this, this extravagant offering to Jesus. Um, it is nard. If you know what nard is, you probably don't. Um, but nard was an expensive spice that was grown in northern India. And this time in, in history, man, it had to be carried thousands of miles by camels. It was highly valuable, or perhaps months and months on a trading ship. And she takes this highly valuable valuable gift, and she pours it on Jesus. And as we see in the other uh, gospel accounts, because this is in, in two of the other gospels, in Matthew and Mark as well, um, she actually not only pours it on his feet, but also his head. And it runs down onto his, onto his shoulders and his garments. And then she does this thing uh, that would have been so shocking in the culture. She takes the pin out of her hair and the veil off and lets her hair down. And in this extravagant symbol of love and worship, she wipes the, the, the perfume off of his feet. It's dramatic and it's shocking. It's so shocking that if you remember, um, John introduces us to Mary in the last chapter, in chapter 11. And it's like, Mary, the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. It's legendary. In fact, it's so legendary, Jesus actually makes the statement after it happens that wherever the gospel's preached, like this story will be told in remembrance of what Mary did. And guess what? Here we are 2,000 years later looking at it and taking inspiration from what she did. But now the tension enters the story. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. That's how valuable it was. This was worth $30,000, $40,000 at the time. And he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas objects and we see the reason, as, as John highlights, the reason his heart was focused differently. He was actually a thief. His heart has been captured by stuff, by belongings. He, Jesus goes on and he responds to Judas this way. Leave her alone, Jesus replies. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among me, or among you, but you will not always have me. And Jesus highlights and shows, no, what Mary just did was a prophetic event. This was a God-led prophetic event. Leave her alone. She did something powerful and profound. It goes on to say this in verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. I mean, the news had spread all over this area. Bethany's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. The news had spread all over, and people are coming from all over to, to witness this and to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So 
listen to this. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Poor Lazarus. I mean, dude just got raised from the dead, and now they're trying to kill him again. <laughs> I mean, he's only been raised for like a week now, or two weeks, or however long, right? Hasn't been very long. And they have it out for him. Why? Because they have their agenda. In fact, if you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about it. We saw that they said, man, right after Lazarus was raised from the dead and all these people begin believing in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, they, they say, if we, let, if we let Jesus go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then what's going to happen is the Romans are going to come and they're going to take our place and our position in the temple and it's going to be awful. We will lose our comfortable place of power and wealth and leadership. And Caiaphas, the high priest, makes this sinister, also prophecy. John sees it as a prophecy and says it's better that one man die for the nation. And now we enter into this final week of Jesus' life. And the tension is in the air. And so I just want to high, come back and I want to highlight a few things when it comes because I, or when it comes to this passage because I think there are some very significant observations when it comes to living like the Romans 12 one way of worship, offering our lives as worship. And so first thing I want to highlight is this word Passover. It says it was six days before the Passover. So this is the final week leading up to Passover. And this is actually where this whole account of Jesus' life in the book of John is pointing towards. Ever since chapter one, if you were here and we've been in John for a while, we've taken some good long breaks, but we've been in John for quite a while. Uh, so if you remember from chapter one, John the Baptist highlights Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God would have been such a strange thing for someone to point out and say. And John, this prophet, um, the great prophet, points over at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God. And everybody thinks about Passover and the Passover lamb. You see, worship, they thought about worship as sacrifice. And Passover reminds them of this time where this precious lamb, they would actually bring it into their, their home and care for it for a period of time. They would select it and care for it. And then they would offer it. And it was this, this blood as this lamb was sacrificed and they would eat the Passover lamb that was the thing that caused the destruction to pass over them in Egypt. They would remember it was the thing that brought them deliverance, their trust in God as they followed God and, and offered this Passover lamb and it all was pointing towards Jesus. In fact, in the final meal that we just celebrated in, in communion that we're going to see in John 13 to 17, Jesus uh, is, is going to be talking about this. Jesus is going to display this in a profound way. And Luke, we see in the upper room, he says, this is the new covenant. This whole Passover ceremony has been about me. It's all been pointing to me the whole time. For 1,500 years, you've been celebrating this, and it's, and it's been a signpost pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that I would make. And so in the midst of this Passover, Jerusalem would, like a city of maybe 50,000 people, 30 to 50,000, man, they, pilgrims would come in from all over. They'd be camped out on the hillsides. The population would go up well over 100, 150,000 people packed in, to this, this small area. All of this, and this was the time when they'd be selecting the lamb. When they'd come to the temple, it was a huge 
point in their faith. And yet it's like the author John recognizes something in this moment that as the Passover begins, God isn't, God isn't focused on what's happening over here at the temple. He's focused on what's happening two miles away in Bethany because this is where true worship is happening right now. This is where the heart of worship for God is being expressed right now. This over here has become dead. This over here has just become a, a, uh, as he looks at the religious leaders, it's become dead religion. But over here, they get it. Over here, the true heart of worship is being expressed in Bethany, in Bethany. And let me tell you about Bethany for a minute, because Jesus shows up in Bethany, and here's what I love about Bethany, what makes Bethany special. Um, It's kind of not that special of a town. It's like just a suburb, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, far enough to sort of be out of the danger zone, close enough uh, that Jesus could go in and teach in the temple regularly when he was in Jerusalem. But what made it special is this, this family, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. These three, and what we see in the scripture is they are super close to Jesus. Like Jesus, in fact, in John 11, um, Jesus, or John says, man, Jesus just loved Martha and Lazarus and Mary. He, he just loved them. He had a special place in his heart for them. And what we see about these people and what models worship is this awesome picture of they just open up their home, they bring what they have, and they offer it to God as Hey, this is for your kingdom. In other words, their home for Jesus' ministry for for a period of time becomes like a kingdom of God Airbnb. It's just like open. And Jesus comes and he brings his smelly disciple friends because they're hot and dusty from walking in. And like, think about that. Like at least like 13 dudes like camping out in your house. What's that old saying from Ben Franklin? Uh, Guests start to smell after three days like fish. Something like that. (laughs) But these guys, they just say, hey, what we have, we're going to use because what's going on here in Jesus' ministry, man, this is what it's all about. And they open up their home and they use it for the kingdom of God, like a, a kingdom Airbnb. And this is a perspective. This is an example of worship worked out in the day in, day out for us as believers, Because as believers, we are called to have a kingdom perspective on all of our stuff. And when I talk about our stuff, I'm not just talking about our possessions, our homes, our cars. I mean, your car should be used for God, right? Your your home, your finances, but it's also the relationships he's put in your life. It's your gifts, your abilities, your talents, Everything you've been entrusted with. We have a fancy term for this that comes um, from scripture called stewardship. And the big idea here is that um, God owns everything. You came into this world with nothing. When you, when you leave, even though you might bury it, you don't get to take it with you, right? We don't really do that anymore. They tried that in Egypt. And now we just dig up mummies and people rob graves, you know, or put it in museums. They didn't get to take it with them. You, you bring nothing in, you bring nothing out. Everything we have, the Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the concept behind stewardship that's so powerful is, God, everything I have has been given to me by you and is for me to manage for your purposes. And this is the heart of a follower of God. This is the heart of true worship. The heart of true worship says, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this? You know, I mean, it changes your perspective. When somebody asks, can I borrow your car? Well, it's not really my car. It's God's car. 
but you've had 14 tickets later, so I don't think God wants you to borrow it. Sorry. <laughs> it's yours. It's yours, God. Yeah, of course you can use this. This isn't mine. This is yours. It's a kingdom perspective on our stuff. It's a kingdom perspective on our relationships. God, why, you have placed me. We have a saying around here, my circle, my responsibility. God, you've placed me in a specific circle of people around people that I get to influence, that I may be their only connection point to Jesus. What am I going to do with that opportunity you've provided? God, you've given me this business. You've given me this ability. You've given me this mind that allows me to do business deals or this mind that allowed me to go to medical school or this mind that allowed me to become a teacher so that I can now influence these kids. How can I influence them for you and your kingdom? Lord, you gave me these kids that I have in my life and half the time I'm stressed out of my mind, but when I'm not, man, help me remember because I've had some precious, precious moments as I get to like see these kids light up in love for you and love for others. Those moments, it's day in, it's day out. The great reformers had a word for this in Latin. It was called living life, quorum deo, which is living before the face of God. Paul says, everything you do in word or, be, or deed be done in the name of Jesus. And here's something I find awesome about this house in Bethany. Like, you know, the, this kingdom Airbnb is they have all these people. And now they've thrown this huge feast in honor of Jesus to express love and gratitude for Jesus. Because he's just done this amazing thing for Lazarus. And Lazarus is hanging out with the dudes. And then you got Martha over here. And here's something interesting. And this is my speculation. Um, and some of the, like, Bible scholars think this too, and I think, I think they're onto something here, is that what you see in this is, what is Martha doing? Serving. She's behind, she's like making a feast. This time, not just for Jesus, not even just his disciples. There's lots of people coming, and she's like throwing this awesome feast because she's very good at that. She's very gifted at it. Now, what I love about this is what you don't see in this account in John. Do you remember, anybody remember, uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, when you first met Martha, what was she doing? She was serving, right? And what was she doing? She was complaining while she served because her sister was over here sitting at Jesus' feet. And she's like, I need some help, Lord. My sister's doing nothing. Why won't you send her over to help? And Martha, now she serves, but you don't see any complaining. And I think there's something in what happens, and this is my speculation, but something that happens in between the last time you saw Martha and the other gospel in this moment where she's serving out of a right heart of gratitude and compassion. And guess what? Some of you, you have gifts. Like this chapter that we started with in Romans goes on all these spiritual gifts and some of them are like doing what I'm doing, you know, leading or speaking. Some of you are like, there is no way I would stand up there and talk into that mic. But you've been gifted in ways that I haven't been, and you serve in different ways and have a powerful impact for the kingdom of God. You're just called to serve behind the scenes. And guess what? This is called the upside-down kingdom. The, Jesus said what? The first shall be last. And there's nothing less important about what you do with your life for Jesus than what I do up here or what a missionary in Africa does. It's a life that's brought in worship and praise to our Savior. That's the critical thing here. And I love it that Martha's back there, and she's doing, like, she's serving. She's serving. This time, I think, out of a heart of gratitude. And then we come to Mary. 
We see Mary in verse 4. And Mary comes up and she takes a pint of this pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet, wiped her feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. And here's what I love about Mary. Like the time before when we meet Mary, she is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is um, not just a symbol of intimacy in her relationship with Jesus. This is also um, the domain of the dudes. Like she's taking the place of like, I don't care that, that I'm not part of like the, the disciple of the group of 12. I'm with the dudes because I'm a follower of Jesus. And in this culture, this was kind of a, you know, that was part of the sort of the shocking thing about when we first see Mary is that we see her invading this space to get close to Jesus. And she's like, I, I know what the customs are, but I'm going to get close to Jesus. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. And you see in Mary this true example of a heart of the follower of Jesus, of a disciple of Jesus that loves Jesus, that wants to be close to Jesus. And here we see her in this moment of this dramatic feast. She does something so dramatic, and it would have been shocking in this culture. I mean, come on, admit it. Even if this happened like today, this would be kind of shocking, wouldn't it? As she takes this this jar of perfume that everybody knows is worth a ton of money. And she, um, we see in the other uh, gospel, she breaks the, the neck, the lid of the bottle off, and then pours this down, not just on Jesus' feet, but on his, on his head and his shoulders and, and, and his feet. And then she takes her hair down, takes the pin out, takes the veil off. <laughs> Shocking in the culture. And this dramatic expression of love washes or wipes his feet with her hair. It's, it's a powerful example of a heart and a life that's poured out for Jesus. Powerful example. She's worshiping extravagantly. Some of the commentators, the scholars think that literally what she took, she took what she had. This is the point. And she had something very valuable in this moment. She had, many commentaries think this was her dowry. That this perfume... This valuable perfume was the thing that she would, in ancient culture, you know, a dowry would be a gift they would give to the, to the husband um, from, the, from the bride's family. And this extremely valuable thing, maybe jeopardizing her future, this was her backup plan. And she pours it on the feet of Jesus. She pours it out in an extravagant display of love and of worship where the Passover's happening over here and lambs are being selected and there's all this religious activity, the heart of worship is displayed two miles away in this little podunk town of Bethany as she pours out her heart and her worship before Jesus. And I just want to point out, like, she takes what she has and uses it for Jesus. And she takes the best. This is Purinard. There was another kind of perfume that was like watered down that was about a third of this price. That probably would have been the one I would have taken, right? Or bought for Valentine's Day and gotten in trouble for it. Um, <laughs> come on, dudes. Pony up. <laughs> and she takes this extremely valuable thing and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. She takes what she has and she takes her best. And I think that's powerful. 
Because I think that is an example of worship for you and for me. That daily, what do you have? What has God placed in your hands? What has God placed in your pool of talents and abilities? What has God given you the position to do? Are you using it for worship to him? Are you living your life as worship to him? Day in, day out. And sometimes it feels extravagant, like Mary, what Mary does here. Sometimes it doesn't feel like much. Maybe Martha's just like, she's back there and she's in her groove. She's doing what she does best. But it's poured out for Jesus. Man, this looks like all sorts of different things for followers of Jesus today. Um, I, I think of like, I went and toured years and years ago. This really awesome, like two, three million dollar home. It was in the Parade of Homes. My friend built it. Um, and they literally like built this like pond and a mountain and a zip line in their backyard because they had a heart to use their home for young life. <laughs> I heard this awesome story of this, this businessman this from England that moved to Southern California, made millions and millions and millions. And after this, he met Jesus and he started a second company. He's like, the first one, that's the family business. The second one, this is God's business. Everything he made from that business the prophets went to the kingdom of God. He supported work of the kingdom. He gave it all away. And the pastor that knew him was like, why do you do this? He's like, for so long, I worshiped the wrong God. When I finally found the right God, how could I not give everything to him? <laughs> now that feels dramatic. That feels out of reach. Oh yeah. Let me tell you about another friend. We've got some, some folks here. They used their house out in Fruitif just so that the young adult Zale could come on out. Our young adult college program, mate, make relationships. We decided we needed to move it closer to the college because that's where most of our people lived. So I asked Winston, we asked a good friend of ours, empty nester, kids out of the house. Hey, we want to invite a bunch of crazy college kids over to your house. They're not really crazy. They're much more tame probably than the older folks, right? <laughs> we want to invite college kids over. He's like, absolutely. I'll open my house up on a Wednesday night. And you know what? College kids are connecting and growing in their relationship with Jesus. And I said, hey, man, thanks so much for doing that. He's like, are you kidding? It's a pleasure. That's a heart that's poured out for just taking what you have and using it for Jesus. What does that look like in your life? What has he given you that maybe you're not even like, isn't even on your radar right now? What has he given you? Mary shows this heart. She brings to Jesus her best. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas... Judas. I want to talk about Judas for a minute. Because even though, like, he is the quintessential villain of history, right? Judas. I'm just guessing none of you named your boys, young boy Judas, right? Never done a baby dedication. In fact, I bet you never named your dog Judas. Your cat, probably you named Judas, right? The outdoor cat stabbed me on the foot the other day, and I'm a little bitter about it, you know. <laughs> but Judas, at this point in time, he's just one of the other disciples. Now, we see his heart because we see his history. But they didn't know that at the time. In fact, even the next chapter, when Jesus sends him out of the upper room and says, go do what you need to do, and what is he doing? He's betraying the location of Jesus to the, to the religious leaders. They just think he went out to do an errand, to pick up something or give some money to the poor. It seemed like, he, like Jesus did that often, right? 
John recognizes because it's just so powerful in retrospect what was happening and what was going on with Judas. But because of that, I think we, we don't see ourselves in him. You know, G- Judas jumped on sort of the follow the discipleship train because he had an agenda. And he'd heard about the Messiah. He knew about the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be a great leader, a king. And if you can be with the king when he's coming to power, boy, when he comes to power, you're going to get some power and wealth and influence. And Jesus just keeps, like, missing his chance to step up and, like, take on the leadership. He didn't fit. Judas had an agenda for God. Judas had plans for Jesus, and and Jesus didn't meet his agenda. And so... In this moment, I mean, he steps up. He says this thing that sounds good, actually, like if we were to have like church business meetings and vote on stuff, which we don't really do around here, but if we were, um, like this probably would have carried the majority vote. He, he gets the other disciples into it. You see in the other gospels, like, what is she doing? What a waste. That could have been sold, given to the poor. And everybody's like, yeah. And they start rebuking Mary harshly. Like, how could she do that? And it was this statement. It was a good-sounding statement. It was, it was this statement that was couched in charitable practicality. Sounded really good at the time. But what we see is Judas' Judas's heart wasn't in it. The thing that had his heart was stuff. See, it's, stuff isn't an issue. Um, I remember this VeggieTales episode, Stuff Mart. Uh, Madam Blueberry, we showed it to our kids. And every time they like get greedy or something, I threaten to show it. And they're like, no, no, don't make us watch it, Dad. They're older now. <laughs> remember that? No. You should watch it. Look it up. Show it to your kids. If you got little kids, it's great. Madam Blueberry. And she's like, Stuff Mart, you know, and comes. Anyway, stuff isn't the problem. The problem is when stuff gets your heart. And see, that's where this upside-down kingdom of God comes. The first shall be last. Everything I've been given is not actually mine. It belongs to him, and it's here for his purposes. And Judas flips that on its head, and Jesus is there for, his, for Judas's plans and Judas's purposes and Judas' agenda. And as soon as the agenda of Jesus doesn't seem to be lining up with his plans, he's out. And he turns around, and actually we see in the other Gospels, he goes out from this moment. After Jesus says, leave her alone. And Jesus says, actually, what she's doing is preparing, like, this was a prophetic act. This was for my burial. And Jesus is like, now you're talking about burial? I'm out. And he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and becomes the quintessential villain of history. And it was because of his plan and his agenda. How often is our agenda to get God to do something our way. And when it's not going our way, how often do we just sort of go off on our own? So a lot of times it's good things. Now, my music stuff, that wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong, actually. But it just wasn't God's agenda for me. I discovered that later. A lot of times it's just... God, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it, and I don't, and we don't really say this. 
because we wouldn't say this, but we end up just going and doing it our way instead of doing it the way that we know he's calling us to. And I love it because Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone, verse 7. And he makes this powerful statement. He says, you will not always have me. Like, there's really good stuff to do. Jesus isn't saying don't minister to the poor. No, in fact, we're commanded to do that, right? That's part of the historic role of the church, reaching out to the poor and the oppressed worldwide. Church has done, led the way on that over the last 2,000 years. But what he is saying is there is always good work to do. But if you're not careful, you will miss out on the most important thing. You have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of attention. And just like with Mary, the first time we meet her, he said she chose the most important thing, sitting at the feet of Jesus. In this moment, he defends this extravagant display of love and of worship. Again. And he recognizes this thing. I think a lot of times we use busyness to distract us from the uncomfortable thing of sitting at the feet of Jesus. Like we follow Jesus, but we never actually get around to pouring our life out for him. We always believe in him, but we never get around to actually making life about him and about his kingdom. And in this moment, Mary chose the right thing. She chose the most important thing. She prophetically followed God in the right time, in the right way. Man, there's been so many times in my life as I look back that I maybe put off what I feel like God is calling. We always think there's always time later. And I think, I don't know, because you don't always realize it, but I think I've missed some really cool things that God wanted to do in the lives of individual people because I put off making that phone call or, or giving that thing or whatever. That's why we need to live a life responsive to his Holy Spirit, paying attention to what he's calling us to do. So Martha serves. Lazarus is there just with his life being this incredible witness to who Jesus is. And Mary took the precious thing she had and she poured it out on the feet of Jesus saying, you know what? The fragrance not only filled like that area, the fragrance filled the whole house. And throughout the week that Jesus led up to the cross, think about this. I think he probably carried that fragrance on those robes. And as he was going through the worst, most difficult week of his life, (laughs) that fragrance was a precious reminder of the love and the worship of his close friend. Would you stand? Let me just ask you this. What about you? What about you? What about your life? Is it being poured out? What would it look like for your life to be extravagantly poured out to follow Jesus? Maybe for you, it's a small thing. It's a faithfulness thing in this season that you're in and raising kids and changing diapers and showing up day in, day out and pouring out your love. Maybe for some, it's like, man, God's been calling me to do this really scary big thing that I've been holding back on. It's time to do it. For some, it's like, 
my, the extravagant thing with me is to make this area of my life right with you, God, and actually say, I'm going to follow you out of gratitude, in view of his mercy. We pour out our lives as an offering to him because of what he did first for us. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to ask for my friends here. Maybe there's an agenda that's holding them back from following you, Lord. Maybe there's something in their life that they need to make right. Maybe there's an area that they've been hanging on to something that they need to let go of. Would you show each one of us what it means that you would just overflow our hearts with such a gratitude and a love for you because of the incredible mercy and love you showed towards us? Not guilt, but gratitude, Lord. And let us pour our lives out in worship and honor and praise to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.